Hello and welcome to Sowing the Seeds of Change, where we explore the ideas that are forming our future reality. My name is Dr. Rosalind Savage. After an environmental epiphany 20 years ago, I left a corporate career to row solo across three oceans using my adventures to raise environmental awareness. And ever since then, I've been obsessed with how we create a better world. On this show, I talk with scientists, philosophers, economists, and activists about how we create a thriving world for people and planet. And I think we're still looking for those brave political leaders who are prepared to articulate that. And and be the mouthpiece, be the representatives of those who don't have the power to articulate it and don't have the voice to be heard. The job of the politician and the job of government is to, is to put social justice at the heart of what they're doing. My guest today is Professor Tim Jackson, an ecological economist and writer. Since 2016, Tim has been the director of the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity, or CUSP, at the University of Surrey in the UK, where he's also Professor of Sustainable Development. Tim is well known for his book, Prosperity Without Growth, which was first published in 2009 and has been translated into no fewer than 17 foreign languages. His latest book came out earlier this year and it's called Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. In 2016, Tim was awarded the Hillary Laureate for exceptional international leadership in sustainability. And in addition to his academic work, he's also an award-winning dramatist with numerous radio writing credits for the BBC. Tim was one of my examiners for my recent doctorate on the nature of change. And towards the end of our conversation today, he mentions that it's quite entertaining that we've now turned the tables. And he also mentions the fact that he gave me quite a hard time in my doctoral defence, or uh, the viva as we call it here in the UK. So yes, he did make me sweat on that occasion, but actually I'm immensely grateful to Tim because the amendments that he asked me to make are now forming the core of my forthcoming book, The Ocean in a Drop. But I do have to admit that coming into this conversation, I was feeling very nervous, a bit like a poorly prepared undergraduate heading into an exam. So I hope my nerves aren't too obvious. This is a great conversation. We talk about wisdom, resilience, fear, consumer capitalism, Maslow's hierarchy, 100 year plans, inequality, the 1%, materialism, the science of desire, pitchforks, revolutions, yoga, yin and yang, the patriarchy, and our mutual confession to being closet monarchists. Enjoy. Hi, Tim, and welcome to Sowing the Seeds of Change. It's a real pleasure to be talking with you today. It's a pleasure to be here, Ros. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, really good to reconnect. I know you've been very busy recently promoting your your new book, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, which is going to form quite a bit of our conversation for today. <laughs> and of course, it's the, the sequel, or, or maybe the prequel, um, to your book, Prosperity Without Growth. Um, but for, before we jump into that, um, I always like to start by asking my guest, what's your favourite quote and why? Well, I, I've chosen one for you that is a quote from the book. And I think because it sort of summarises one of the key things about the book. And it's a quote from a Chinese sage called Lao Tzu, um, who was writing about two and a half thousand years ago. <laughs> 
but it's a lovely it's a lovely kind of quote in the sense that it it uh, sums up one of the key messages of the book and what Lao Tzu said in the in it's a book called um, the Book of the Way or sometimes the Power of the Way, and it was the foundation really for for Taoism. And there's a wonderful quote where he just says that that enough is enough to know. In other words, you know that sense of recognizing when we when we have a sufficiency that's pretty much a central guiding feature of the good life and and that's very much a theme of post-growth and in particular it's a kind of it's also a critique of capitalism because one of my critiques of capitalism is that capitalism never knows when enough is enough and it's always seeking for more and and in seeking for more it kind of always pushes us relentlessly out of balance so Lao Tzu's recommendation you know he's kind of this is about it guys this is all you need to know when is enough enough and asking ourselves that question is a you know is, is a good thing in terms of redefining an economy but it's also a very interesting piece of guidance for our everyday life yeah, it feels like a really important piece of wisdom that somehow at some point in the last two and a half thousand years or maybe much more recently uh, we've lost sight of that and it, in fact it's interesting it, in a way i feel like the title of the book is almost a bit misleading it is a book about post-growth um but i think it doesn't really bring out how philosophical even somewhat spiritual this book is about you know what is a life well lived what really matters to us as human beings because there is growing evidence that certainly for those of us lucky enough to live in the developed world, that beyond a certain point, additional money doesn't bring additional happiness. In fact, if anything, it can become counterproductive. I really love the way that you're taking economics and putting it into this context of, of humanity, <laughs> which, you know, is, is really what's, what's going on here. I sort of agree about the title. The title's a legacy. It's partly a legacy of, of the work that I've been doing over the last two, three decades, which has been around, you know, exploring what an economy looks like when it's not growing, the challenges of that, the opportunities from that. Um, but it's also a legacy from the original discussion that I had with the publisher, who and they wanted me to be writing you know, something very much around that theme of post-growth because they felt it was becoming a sort of important conversation. And I think it is an important conversation, but I, but I was actually quite pleased when the German translation, the publisher for the German translation said, we don't we don't really like this, you know, post vaxtums doesn't work so well in German. Uh, could you come up with another title? And um, actually, I, I, a close friend came up with the title of what is the German translation that's being released in a couple of weeks and it's just called How Should We Live? Which I thought was a you know really nice way of, in a sense, of capturing exactly what you're saying, that the book, the theme of the book is like that. It's, you know, what, what can prosperity mean on a finite planet? How should we live under these um, conditions and, and, and how can we make the most of our lives? Which of course is also, you know, as you said, is the object of inquiry for philosophers from across the ages. Mm, I think Lao Tzu would be proud of that lineage because that sounds like much more what he was writing about. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, something that I've thought about a lot is the inescapable logic of the IPAT equation. Environmental impact is the product of population multiplied by affluence multiplied by technology. And there are some variations on this. And I think a really important one is the addition of wisdom into that equation. And it really seems to be that wisdom 
part that you are bringing here that sort of um when we get out of the economic assumptions you know what is the wise way to live on this earth given that mm. we have finite resources uh, it's perhaps also worth saying i mean I, th I like i like that idea i think we might actually you know be on our way to a, a best-selling academic paper um, if we were to put a W into the iPad equation, I mean, people, you know, make their careers off less. So uh, we could definitely have a think about it. But it's interesting also how the conventional way of thinking about that iPad equation is that wisdom is just in the technology component. In other words, it's about, you know, knowledge and ingenuity and innovation. Um, and of course, what you're saying is actually wisdom doesn't, isn't just about technology. It is about the ways that we live and therefore the, the t in the ipad equation doesn't capture it for us I'd be, I'd be interested in a kind of mathematical form with a w in the ipad equation and also how you'd say it whip at exactly <laughs> i don't know um, yeah. although it feels like the w also relates to the affluence part as exactly. a, a sort of yeah. um i always feel like i want the a to be to the power of w which i'm sure yeah. mathematicians would probably take issue with uh, as i exhibit my um ignorance about mathematics but it, it feels that that um oh maybe there's another w in here as well which would be rather than affluence having the word wealth in there in the sense of what is true wealth? Because it's not just the money that we have in our bank account. And again, noting, you know, we're both fortunate enough to live in a reasonably developed country of Britain. And there's been a growing conviction on my part over the, the last few years that I've been researching this, that we genuinely can have a healthy planet and happier people at the same time. And somehow a lot of the language or the opponents of environmentalism have made it sound as if we're asking for sacrifice. I know that when you've published your first paper that was the um, precursor of prosperity without growth, somebody asked if you wanted us all to go back to living in caves. So how do we get away from that that false myth that, that we can't have like the best of, of both worlds? Yeah, and a lot of, that was really a lot of what I was trying to do in post-growth in a sense was to paint a picture of a world which was richer, which was more fulfilling happier if you like you know the language of happiness is probably sometimes a little bit tricky because it happiness sometimes feels like oh hey i'm happy and it's all about kind of joy and instantaneous partying and being always up and up and up which which of course nobody ever is really and the people who pretend to be like that have got a dark side that's as deep as hell almost but um you know so it's not that form of happy 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 i think is not what, what i wanted to be talking about and not what what people when they think about you know happiness in the sense of classical philosophy were talking about either they were thinking more in terms of a, of a good life or as aristotle would say a virtuous life a, li a life worth living with fulfillment and with meaning and 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 to some extent you know one of my biggest critiques of capitalism is that that form of happiness has been a casualty of the way that consumer capitalism in particular has propagated itself we've been led into this dream of a kind of materialistic cornucopia you know we can have everything we want and we could go on having it forever and future generations will have even more of it you know apart from the ecological impossibility of that i f i find it philosophically and and psychologically bankrupt because i don't believe that's what human 
fulfillment and human happiness is about. And I don't believe that when you ask people that that's what it's about. And I don't believe that philosophers of the ages think that's what it's about or, or poets or, or dramatists or, you know, novelists that actually we've given away a sort of such an intricate part, an integral part of our humanity by thinking that we're just, you know, novelty seeking hedonists who want more and more material stuff. And, and of course, as you say, it's really important to recognise that there are people in the world who don't even have enough to have a, a decent life. And, and that, I think, is where the metaphor of growth still has some resonance. But I think, you know, when we take that metaphor of growth into the most advanced countries in the world, it is it is different things that we should be growing. It, it is it is our intrinsic satisfactions and our senses of, of well-being and our connection to other and the strength of our relationships. Nothing wrong with growing those things at all, but they tend to be a casualty of the growth-based capitalism that we're living within. I think a real challenge, and speaking from personal experience, I grew up in a family with, by British standards, not that much money. And it was pretty boring not having enough money. And I really bought into the Thatcherite, Reaganite story that money can buy you happiness. I mean, maybe I'm just exceptionally slow and not very bright that I couldn't use my imagination to realise that money can't buy happiness. If the people in the world in the developing countries, if they all have to reach that point of having enough affluence to recognise that actually it doesn't work, that there are these much more worthwhile things that you talk about, you know, like relationships, like having purposeful, enlivening work, then it looks like a pretty bleak picture for the planet. So it's kind of, you know, does everybody have to get over that in some way, uh, in the way that you did, or is there a way of shortcutting that? I, I don't know. I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, I was always been fascinated with the work of Abraham Maslow. Um, and he, in his early work, he pitched something which has been called the hierarchy of human needs. And to be fair, he did pitch it in a fairly hierarchical way. He said, you know, first you have to have subsistence. If you haven't got enough to eat, then you're not worrying about what's happening tomorrow. You're, And then you, when you get over that, you're worried about your social needs. And after that, you know, how you get on with your neighbours and your relationships and how, what your status is in the pecking order. And after that, if you're lucky, you can get on to your transcendental needs, this sort of self-actualization and this sort of higher development of who we are as as beings and and what struck me you know what i found always interesting about that is that that metaphor of the hierarchy stayed it, it stuck somehow it had a kind of sticking power so that i can still go into you know actually even boardrooms and government meetings and have people quote as though they've discovered it for the first time maslow's ah, it's all about maslow's hierarchy of needs isn't it and and what they didn't do was go back to Maslow and look at his later writing. For example, in 1968, he published a book and, and where he basically said, actually, the more you look at it, the more you look at the evidence, we're looking at a kind of duality in human nature. We're looking at this duality between our kind of material selves, which, of course, are dependent on subsistence, on, on decent housing, on good food, and to some extent also acquisitive of material things. But we also have a side of us which is much less material, which is actually much more social and is ultimately transcendental and possibly even something that we could call spiritual. And these two things go on uh, in human beings at, at the same time, not one after the other, refused the sustenance that would, uh, you know, keep them alive. 
sometimes to the point of famine, just because they had certain religious beliefs about we do, we do have course have that material side and that materiality to our lives, but we also have a spiritual side, we have a psychological side, a social side, and they're not one after the other. They're actually in duality with each other. And and I think the reason and and I don't I wouldn't you know I'm not saying that it's at all like saying that you were a bit a bit slow getting to that point. But I think the reason most people don't get to that point is that we don't live in a society that recognises that we actually encourage those materialistic values over the social and spiritual and psychological values deliberately because you know that's what's going to make all the consumers that we need to keep the consumer economy going so and to me to me therefore that you know that i always go back to that idea that we are we have this duality in us and and that i think is a place and it's also my experience a little bit after publishing prosperity without growth because it was written you know at the time for the uk government as you said and uh, definitely for advanced economies but what i was really fascinated by was the the interest in that work from places i had never expected it from some of the poorest economies in the world and what they picked up on was this idea about the nature of our prosperity and you know i remember this one conversation with a group of economists in I think it was Papua New Guinea or somewhere like that. And they were developing a hundred year plan for their community, um, which economists that you know have ever developed a hundred year plans. It's absolutely fantastic. And, and then we held the conversation by Skype. I spent the day with them by Skype talking about this hundred year plan and they picked up prosperity without growth and they picked up, you know, the, 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 some of the ideas in it about redefining prosperity and some of the economics in it. And I said, look, I'm really not sure I can help you that much because I'm speaking to, you know, advanced economists to my own government, to my country. And they said, well, no, you can, Tim, because, you know, your three principles are establish the limits, look at where ecology tells you the limits are, uh, fix the economics and change the social logic because the social logic of consumerism is leading us astray. Well, look, we don't have that social logic. We have a different social logic. So we're, t we're a third of the way there altogether. All we have to do is to protect our social logic, a logic that actually comes from a different place, a place where that duality between matter and spirit is, is held slightly differently from, from our very materialistic consumer societies. And so that gives me a hope, at least, that that danger that you're suggesting that, you know, everybody has to kind of get over materialism before they can arrive at something richer isn't necessarily the case. But then in the developed world, does it ever feel like it's you and kindred spirits and the researchers that produce all of this evidence that more stuff doesn't make us happy? And in fact, people who evaluate their personal worth dependent on what they own are less happy than the average up against this enormous advertising industry that is designed to make people believe that they are inadequate or less than if they don't have the latest fashions, toys, cars, whatever. It feels like that's such a sophisticated industry telling very powerful and visually compelling story of people laughing as they drive their new car or, you know, attracting a sexy partner because of the stuff that they own. How do we overcome that, those massive budgets and those massive influences? 
Yeah, yes, I, I do. I do sometimes feel as though that is, you know, a huge opponent. It's probably quite interesting to see it as an opponent in a sense because of the, you know, the massive resources that are being marshaled towards that. And we should never forget, I think, that that industry was constructed entirely for those purposes of of creating uh, desire, manufacturing desire. There's a there's a there's an early advertising book that I sometimes quote called the, the the science of desire, by a man called Ernest Dichter, and and they were people you know deliberately putting together that idea that what we had to do was connect people emotionally with material things in order to persuade them to keep on buying them, and that's the advertiser's job is to create that connection. You know what does your pen, car, house, toilet roll say about you and status and your status in the world. And it's insidious. I mean, it's absolutely horrible. And I think it's absolutely, you know, what's more, the the, the, the sharpest end of that um, insidiousness, I think, is that we do that to our kids from a very, very early age and, and their exposure to it is almost entirely unregulated. And even attempts to regulate, you know, kind of above the line advertising on, on, on television and media and so on for kids of a certain age before the watershed or, or whatever is now being undermined by by social influences on um, on social media and, and the impact that that has on kids. And so I do think, you know, it's, it's one of those areas that kind of comes out as being a place where we have to, in some ways, find the mechanisms through which we rein that back. And of course, at the individual level, with enough strength of will, people can do that. And one of the arguments that the, you know, anti-regulatory lobby in relation to advertising is that you need informed consumers who can take a sensible response to advertising and resist its lures when it isn't in their interest and so on and so forth. That, of course, when you're talking about, you know, kids who are barely reading age and, and taking in visual imagery, which is incredibly socially powerful, uh, it, it, I think is a nonsense. I think we have to go further than that. We have to begin to rein back the license that's been given to advertisers and indeed to um, the people for whom that advertising is, is benefiting their, their market campaigns um, and, and put in place the restrictions that will protect the values that we that matter to society. Yes, we intervene on exposing young children to too much sex or too much violence in the media. So maybe excessive consumerism and all of the impacts that that has on mental health and physical health as well. There would be a very valid case for that. I'm thinking about Edward Bernays, who was the subject of a very good Adam Curtis documentary called The Century of Self. I believe that he was a nephew of Sigmund Freud and his book about... Mm. So he's credited as being sort of the, the godfather of the advertising industry. And his book was actually called Propaganda, which yeah. is, is pretty revealing and pretty terrifying. Yeah, no, exactly. They knew what they were doing. It was deliberate. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So just want to take a short break now. Sowing the Seeds of Change is brought to you through the generous support of Seeds, now growing together in a bioregion near you. SEEDS is an experimental global collaborative community, learning how to collectively govern and regenerate our one home, this earth, one village at a time. Learn more at joinseeds.earth. And to go to one of the questions that I ask all of my guests, Tim, if you were the democratically elected king or queen, if you prefer, of the world for a day, uh, what would your first decree be and why? 
I worry that this is a trick question and, and that the right answer is that I should abandon the monarchy. Um, but, but actually I'm a kind of, I'm a closet monarchist in a funny kind of way. So, so I probably wouldn't do that. And I would, I would probably situate my, for the purposes of this exercise, just situate myself as the Queen's consort. And I, I would, I would pick up where the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip left off because I, and it goes to the theme that we were talking about, you know, how do we create this post-growth world and how, how does it become a place which is rich and fulfilling? And, and to me, you know, the Duke of Edinburgh scheme, which was a scheme that took young kids and, and taught them social values, taught them environmental values, taught them the value of learning a skill, was a program, you know, that, that really speaks to that idea. I think we have given up on the development of people, of individuals, of kids. And in doing so, we've actually robbed them of the satisfactions that come through that. So I'd pick up something like the Duke of Edinburgh scheme and I kind of, you know, I'd want that rolled out. I want access for kids so that they're not only bombarded by adverts on their iPhones. They're not only subject to the values that are being pushed by consumerism and, and celebrity role models, that they are learning the value of of each individual person as the site of unique skills, abilities and potentials. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I've done quite a bit of work with the Duke of Edinburgh scheme myself as handing out the the gold awards to the proud recipients. And just seeing like the, the beam of pride on their faces as they collect their certificates, I think that would speak volumes to them about the, the difference in the quality of the feeling between that sense of achievement and what it feels like to get the latest video game or whatever. Hopefully, hopefully that would actually be experiential learning for them. So yeah, I fully applaud that. And I also hear you on the on the closet monarchist. Yeah, I find myself being quite a, a fan of the institution of the, the royal family for reasons that slightly mystify me. But I feel like something Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> something very traditional, a sense of solidity would somehow be lost. Yeah, it's really interesting also when you when you I don't know I don't know how much of this is real or not, but when you look at, you know, the crown, the 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 Netflix series on the monarchy and the particularly the early episodes of that where they talk about how the values of the institution of the monarchy were quite explicit, quite deliberate. And what I really what really struck me about that was that it is very anti-capitalist. You know, it's quite hierarchical. You can't deny that. You know, the monarchy is the step between the people and God. But you but you but you have to sort of say it's very anti-capitalist because it's placing power and hierarchy and influence at a different level in society than the level of the market and the dominance of the market. That sounds like a bit of an ad hoc justification, post hoc justification for a closet belief that not everyone shares, I think we should recognise. No, I, I like that story. I'm going to go with that one. Okay, now, okay, I, feel, yeah. <laughs> now I feel vindicated. Thank you, Tim. Um, so you serve as an advisor to to government, to companies, and they, they bring you in to talk about your work in prosperity without growth and post-growth economics. Do you feel like they really listen to what you're saying and do they take it on board and start to embody it or does it sometimes feel a bit tokenistic 
Yeah, I mean, it's what I do struggle with that, to be perfectly honest. And I've done a lot of it and I hate it. I just I hate that feeling when I come out of something thinking I've just been entertainment. You know, I've just been fodder for either salving their own conscience or, or just entertaining their intellect. And it has nothing to do with the way the ideas translate into into practice but I also come across enough situations I think where where I interact with you know incredibly bright incredibly motivated and incredibly well-intentioned people who really are trying to change those different systems from the inside I think I would argue that that I've seen those changes you know not this I'm not claiming credit for them but but as part of a conversation that I am engaged in and have to some extent stimulated, I, I think we're looking at a very, very different place from the world that belonged to, you know, Milton Freeman's famous edict that the business of business is business. You know, very few people trot that back at me now. Um, whereas even, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you would still get that. You sort of say, well, that's fine, but, you know, it's the rate of return that we're, we're concerned about. Well, that's fine, but, you know, our fiduciary duties to our shareholders um, and of course those fiduciary duties are important they matter they're still there sometimes we need to do a little bit of work on exactly what those duties are or should be but the conversation is is so much broader now that I again perhaps it's a bit of a sort of post-op justification but I do sort of you know evaluate my time spent in those court jester situations as i sometimes think of them as as being you know as being worth the time but i don't you know i, d I definitely don't like the idea that we're just kind of creating a sort of um, you know salving people's consciousness or distracting them even from the damage that's being done i think it's i think it's important to, to sort of maintain the line to be really uncompromising not to sell something as a message just because it's comforting or just because it's something that people will listen to and I've never found that to be very successful to be honest I mean the places where perhaps the biggest changes have happened and been made of the places where I've been the most uncompromising and sometimes when you're uncompromising people will just not invite you back which is fine by me because there's you know there's plenty plenty of other people still inviting me places but uh, but sometimes when you're uncompromising that really engenders registers stimulates change and that's that's quite exciting to see i'm wondering in those conversations or in other conversations does equality come into them because there might be people who say well actually it's it's not so much growth that's the issue it's the way that that growth is distributed that it's still the people the one percent the people at the top who are getting the lion's share of that growth and trickle down economics doesn't work yeah it does it does it has to i mean i don't think you can really get away from it and um you know we did some really interesting work sort of valuing the impact of an unequal distribution of income and what we figured out was that you know if we had the UK's income was distributed more equally, we could actually do with 25% less of it because the value of the inequality that was being created by this unequal distribution of income with people, particularly the richest 1%, getting on average 6% richer every year over the last 20 years, you know, that is deeply divisive and it's unpleasant and it creates conditions in society that don't work for everyone as um, Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson showed, you know, inequality doesn't just hurt the poor, it hurts the whole of society. And when you, when you figure out, you know, the economic cost of that damage, it's substantial. 
you know, it's 25% of the value of our output is wasted because we've got an unequal distribution of income. Turn that on its head. Actually, we could be earning three quarters. We could have a degrowing economy. And if we distribute it more equally, the well-being outcome would be the same uh, as it is at the moment. Or we could uh, go somewhere in between and, and, you know, improve the quality of life of the poorest, uh, moderate the gains in the richest. And, and, and to me, uh, you know, a lot of the trends in the last little while in terms of social justice have not been, have been not just in terms of, you know, well-being in some abstract sense going wrong, but they've had profound implications for, for social solidarity and for social stability. And to some extent, I think, underlie our experiences in this country through Brexit, the experiences of North America, through Trump, the experiences of nationalism in Europe, you know, a dissatisfaction with our society because of these vast inequalities. So yes, it's, it's absolutely essential to, to thinking about a post-growth economy. And yet it seems that there's still a sort of tacit acceptance of the status quo. I remember several years ago listening to Nick Hanauer's TED talk on the pitchforks are coming. And he was speaking as a very privileged person himself, saying that a society has never had this level of inequality without the pitchforks, the guillotines and the rest coming out. And, you know, I'm not trying to incite a, a revolution here or maybe just a little bit. Um, but, you know, why are people not out in the streets saying this is not OK? This level of inequality is not OK. The damage that we're doing to the planet. Is, is not okay. There are some protests, but still a lot of people seem to be going along with, with what's going on. What's it gonna take for people to say enough? It isn't like the financial crisis where the obvious greed belonged within the system. And so the outrage was directed at those in the system. It, it seems to be a kind of external em enemy in some way, whatever we think about the origins of the pandemic itself and the, and the origins of the crossover into, into the human genome. But, but it's external enough that we can't quite figure out, you know, whose fault that is. And yet the inequalities are quite clearly the fault, the responsibility of society as a whole to fix. And it could be that what we're looking at is a situation where those who, who benefit from those inequalities have no desire at all to do anything about it. And those who are, suffer from those inequalities have no power to do anything about it. That's very, you know, it's a very possible one of the reasons for the absence of the outrage that one might expect but we do also see a social conversation which is about those with some power and some voice saying enough is enough and and i suppose you know what we're looking for in a sense is a politics uh, brave enough to give voice to to that slightly muted outrage to give it a place to go and we saw in the uk we saw you know we, we got close to the politics of that with um Jeremy Corbyn's Labour and we saw it also shot down I think from almost every side by and and even from within his own rank that to me was a very disappointing moment not because I necessarily thought that Jeremy Corbyn was you know a perfect leader or the right person to be there but because the politics that he was espousing and the values of it of putting social justice at the heart of politics was something that I think needs to happen and needs to be taken seriously and and if Jeremy did a job, I think, during that time. It was to, it was to make that point strongly enough that the Tories were then able to pick it up 
and operationalize it in the red wall and in the you know in the in the kind of leveling up agenda in a way that has brought it marginally into the center of our politics but nothing like enough and i think we're still looking for those brave political leaders who are prepared to articulate that and be the mouthpiece be the representatives of those who don't have the power to articulate it and don't have the voice to be heard and that's that's a process that i think you know comes and goes it has its political waves it takes time um and my hope is that we find that political wave before the outrage expresses itself with pitchforks on the streets because i i personally you know think it's quite important to avoid that kind of violence i don't think violent revolution has a very good reputation in terms of smooth systemic human change um, it tends to be associated with a shift from one set of bad values to another set of bad values and with a lot of human pain and damage in the process so i, I believe in a political process i guess i'm saying and and what i would look to and hope for is political leaders who are who have that sense the same sense that jeremy did have and that, and actually that robert kennedy had in 1968 that the job of the politician and the job of government is to is to put social justice at the heart of what they're doing absolutely and i do also think even while we look for that political leadership there is also something of a responsibility on the electorate to let politicians know that that would be a vote winner. I'm reading a really inspiring book at the moment that's fiction. I rarely read fiction these days, but it's called The, the Dandelion Insurrection. Mm -hmm. And it is about a non-violent movement of protest against inequality against planetary exploitation it's um all it reads almost like a manual on how to create social change through non-violent means and it's um i don't think it's even particularly utopian it feels like it could come true so i'm i, I recommend it as a, as a very inspiring yeah read. definitely going to look at that thanks yeah so i want to jump over to um another one of my questions um I know during COVID, people's lives have been a bit disrupted and maybe we've had more opportunity, more time or more necessity to do things that we haven't done before. So, Tim, I'm wondering, what's the last time that you did something for the first time and what was it? I think it was today, right now, because I've never been interviewed by someone whose PhD I examined before. So. <laughs> That's, that's a little bit of a cheat, I guess. I know that's not really what you're asking, but it is kind of weird and I, I kind of quite like it, the role reversal that's happening here. Um, I guess, you know, the one thing, the lockdown, I used to go to the gym a lot. I, I, I really, I think fitness matters. I think health matters and physical fitness matters. So, and so I really missed that. I really missed that kind of interaction. And I started doing sort of online stuff. And because it was online, it was safer. Um, for me, I, I, I started doing things that I would I had spent my lifetime avoiding, like um, yoga classes. So actually, yoga you know yoga classes online might sound nuts, but actually, it's a really good thing, particularly you know for for, for inflexible men who have spent their lifetimes avoiding that. Um, and and I have you know I have kind of regained parts of movement that I that I never expected I would really that I thought I hadn't I had consigned to history basically and uh, so that's been a it's been a very important part of my lockdown good for you and maybe also a little bit less intimidating than showing up as a man oh, to yeah. a class of like-clad women yeah no I mean I did I, I remember doing it a couple of times but then you know that was it it was once and I was out that door as fast as I could 
Um, but it is pretty terrifying, um, if particularly if, if you're a man. <laughs> so actually, that brings me on quite well to my next question, because I'm curious about your personal evolution as a thinker because your background looks very sort of masculine you know grounded in maths and physics and economics but it feels like maybe recently there's but I, I know that you're also a screenwriter so you've you've all oh, sorry a playwright so you you yeah. are interested in the, the human condition and you've always had that balance of the the yin and the yang but I'm wondering if you are like from the inside sensing an, an evolution towards more psychological maybe even spiritual aspects of your exploration well, it's interesting you should say that I mean at the beginning I think you talked about post crisis being a prequel rather than a sequel and I think of it that way because actually I think I was always like that as a kid really I mean actually when I was born, I think my mum hoped I was going to be a girl because she'd had a boy already. And then um, then she had another boy afterwards. And so for, for a little while, I mean, there were a few kids after that as well, I have to say, and I do have some lovely sisters. Um, but for a little while, I, I remember this, you know, the, how kids sort of occupy different positions in the family. And my, and my brother, my older brother, uh, had all the power and no responsibility. And I had, you know, no power and quite a lot of responsibility. And that responsibility I developed, I think, as a kid, as much in response to my mother's side of, of the parenting as to my father's, and was instinctively her kind of poetry and her love of, of nature and, and her femininity itself, actually, I think were quite powerful influences on my life. Even as my father was there kind of saying, uh, you know, you have to excel at math, you have to be good at physics, you have to be an engineer. And, and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing it, he was doing it in a, in a generational way. He was still that generation of fathers who drew their values out of almost Victorian um, models of parenthood. And there was that, you know, that gender divide that was going on between my parents. And I was I was torn uneasily between them. And ultimately, what, what screwed me, if you like, was when my brother chose to do languages and arts at A-level. And therefore, I, I suddenly I was in a different place. I was being pushed into, you know, keeping the truce, keeping the balance in the in the parental influences by choosing my father's side of the equation and studying maths and physics, which he loved, you know, he really wanted me to do that. And then very slowly sort of coming back from that, I think, you know, my professional life then was in, in economics. I, you know, almost by accident began to be looking at the economics of technologies and interested in the economic questions. But at the same time, as you, as, as you say, I still had this kind of alternative career as a as a radio dramatist, which is where I put all that all that um, slightly more yang side of yin yin side of me, I suppose. Yang was more in a professional life. Yin was in the was in the radio writing. And and what I feel post growth for me, you know, kind of I hope a little bit has done has brought those halves of myself a little bit more into the same sphere. And and that's the sense in which it's a prequel. You know, prosperity without growth was full of statistics and graphs and and economics and theories and equations and and was talking to statisticians and to and to politicians about policies that they could do on Monday. It was very instrumental. I remember my mum looking at it and saying, well, there's lots of graphs in it, Tim, aren't there? And I, yeah, sorry, mum. You know, I'll do something better next time. And sadly, sadly, she she didn't live to see post-growth being published, but I kind of like to think that, you know, she she would have liked it and she would have seen in it her influence as much as, as, much as my father's and she would have seen those things kind of coming together. And I, you know, I recognise I recognize that struggle 
in men generally, I think we find it hard and, and partly culturally, we find it hard to acknowledge that side of ourselves. It, it's actually deeply uncomfortable in some circumstances, in some institutions to to recognise that, or it has been. Um, but I'm, I'm also really encouraged to see that that's changing. I think in my kids' generation, I think, and I might be totally misjudging it, you know, we are beginning to change the and, and make more fluid those gender stereotypes all the way along all kinds of different spectrums. And it's now it's now a more comfortable place to be, I think, to acknowledge that, that we're not just this sort of set of yang-dominated masculine forces that continually have to compete and show our dominance. Yeah. It's time. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's time. I mean, I know from women's side that you know that it, it it's obviously time. But I think you know from men's side, I think I understand, and it's a tricky thing to say. Obviously, you know, to to you, to any woman that you know, <clears throat> men have suffered under this. I think they have. I think there's a deep unhappiness beneath our vision of masculinity. I think um, there's also a sense of freedom in moving away from it. Absolutely, yeah. You mentioned earlier that inequality doesn't serve the rich really any more than it serves the poor. And I guess that the patriarchy is just another form of that inequality, that men suffer as much from it as, as women do. So, yes, I, I really hope that those old patterns of domination dissolving somewhat now. And I, I sort of flip-flop from day to day between feeling optimistic that change and like this shift in consciousness is really happening and then there are days when it all looks much more regressive and but mm. I, I see that flip-flopping as as maybe a sign of the instability and the unsustainability in every sense of that word of the current system and that change mm. is coming yeah i think that that kind of fluidity is is a sign of change isn't it it's almost a precondition of change in some ways so so I, I like to see that too. And and I do think, I mean, I think absolutely, in fact, and it's, it's played out in the statistics, for example, that, that girls do better than boys in our education system now. And, and of course, you could say, well, you know, it's about time too, and they, they will have better opportunities coming out of it, and it's good. But it is also that there is something happening on there which is difficult. For boys and and I think we have to recognize that and support it you know another another justification in a way for my recommendation as 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 Queen's consort to give kids the skills that they need to develop a, a sort of well-rounded personality and and a way through life mm. so you mentioned your kids how old are they now well, they're not really kids anymore but uh, I wish I could persuade them of that. They're, they're just, they're, I think, uh, you know, it's something wrong because they're a bit too comfortable and they're still, uh, at the moment, certainly the, the older two are still um, still here, uh, having both, for different reasons, I think, sadly, eventually given up on education, um, on, on higher education. And and I think, you know, certainly in the case of my, my daughter who went to university at the beginning or in the middle of the pandemic and, and, and basically had a year of not seeing anyone. You know, none of the social life of, of being a student was there. None of the interaction with other students was there. None of the mentorship with, with tutors was there. And, and so quite understandably in a way, she's kind of said enough's enough and she doesn't quite know where she's going, I think. 
Um, and and my son somehow landed on his feet through the pandemic and had some online work, but has uh, you know that that fell foul of the housing market, which is a little bit tricky at the moment and unpredictable. And so he's he's also here. And of course, it's great to it's great to have so much time with. <laughs> and it'll all be also be nice when uh, when we get our space back. But it's you know I I find myself I find myself as a father terrified most of the time almost you know over terrified because of the work that i've done and my sort of knowledge about the the fragility of of the economy and of society and of the uncertainty going forwards i have to really kind of bring myself back to center and sort of say you know you have to trust this generation as your your generation did found you know its way through a world that is no longer the world of their parents and um and that their instincts about that world actually are stronger than mine and um you know i think it's a very hard thing to do i'm fine you've caught me right in the middle of a very very difficult <laughs> attack of that sense of terror about my kids lives and the future of their lives but i but i think the only thing that we can offer them is that is that sense of trust that they'll find their way um, through a world which is no longer ours. So for the benefit of other parents who might be listening to this, um, I wonder if there are ways that you've tried to prepare them for these uncharted waters that we're all sailing into or rowing into right now. I suppose what I've tried to instill in them is, is resilience. So I took them very early into quite challenging situations in nature, for example. Um, and I haven't tried to be sort of didactic, you know, do this, do that, you must do this, you must do that. I've tried not to, of course, every parent fails in that respect. But I do think that quality of, of resilience really matters. And, and it's what I read about, have read about your, your adventures and your, um, your experiences. It's the thing that sort of fascinates me is, is where that resilience comes from and what are the components of it you know in very precise terms so when you're you know in the middle of the atlantic or the middle of the southern ocean something goes dramatically wrong your life is imminently in danger it's that sense of resilience is the thing that makes a difference really you know uh, ultimate difference between life and death in that case and i i just wondered if i can turn to that question to you now i you know what are the components of that resilience for you? How is it that we cope with that sense of adversity that is actually so powerful in that particular situation is so powerful that it could, um, you know, be life threatening? Mm, thank you, Tim. That's, that's a great question. And I'm happy I actually have an answer. Um, so I, I taught a, a class at Yale for a semester and this is going to be like the, the three minute version of a one semester class. Um, I was framing it more in terms of courage than resilience, but I think the two are very closely related. And my, um, I don't know the correct tech, mathematically technical term for this, but my central premise is that when your motivation is greater than your fear, then you're able to come back with resilience, you're able to act with courage, what, whatever is required of you in that moment. Um, because there were definitely a, a great many times when I was afraid for, for very good reasons. <laughs> the, the ocean is, is not a very human friendly place to be. There's a very good reason that most of us live on dry land. And so what I had to do on a, a daily basis was to reinforce, reconnect with my, my motivation to keep on going. And 
I had multiple reasons why I was doing what I was doing. Um, but the, the two biggest ones were the mission to raise awareness about environmental issues. I'd had this sort of belated environmental awakening in my early 30s and, and was just absolutely on fire with, with passion um, to do that in the very naive belief that if I just said to people, hey, we've got an environmental crisis going on, that everybody would go, oh dear, we must do something about it. But anyway, there, there is a lot to be said for <laughs> naive idealism. It gets Definitely. stuck um, and then the other big reason why was my personal wish to find out what I was capable of. I'd had really quite an easy life, I suppose, in many ways, living in a, a developed country and having a stable family background. I was in this very privileged position of being able to choose my challenge. A lot of people have challenges thrust upon them by bereavement, divorce, a diagnosis, bankruptcy, COVID, whatever. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to, to choose these rather bizarre challenges of rowing across oceans. So I would draw on my motivation and I also learned how to get a handle on fear that I found that if I gave into my natural tendency, which is to sort of try and ignore the scary thing, <laughs> to try and run away from it, that actually it tends to loom much larger when we don't turn around and look directly at it. And if I could summon all of my courage and stare it right in the face, it was like it just shrank. I wow. actually saw that it was a very small thing casting a very big shadow. And so that was my formula that I actually still draw on because... I think we all get daunted by things and you know especially those of us with an environmental mission there are times that we just look at the the scale and the seeming intractability of the challenges that we're up against and it's easy to get a bit despondent or a bit mm. hopeless or a bit overwhelmed so that's really fascinating actually because I, I you know as a as a kind of practical strategy that sort of turning and facing a fear thing uh, we, we, we did a bit of work, and I talk about it a little bit in the book, on achieving this kind of state of fulfillment and flow and the antecedents of it. You know, when is it harder to do it and why is it harder to do it? And we found this interesting thing. It's been found elsewhere is that more materialistic people find it harder to reach that state of flow, even though it's the most satisfying thing in the world. Materialism actually stands in the way. And then we tried to figure out why on earth that is. And we discovered that more materialistic people tend to try and force the positive and turn away from the negative. So they turn away from undesirables. And yet the, all this energy that you take suppressing the undesirables, not facing the fear, actually takes away from the focus and the concentration that you need to achieve the state of flow. And this was, it was absolutely fascinating discovery, really, that this kind of materialistic society was also one in which we were being taught to sort of almost evade fear, never turn around and confront it, never confront those undesirables. So it speaks, it speaks exactly to that mechanism that we, we sort of uncovered in that study. And, and, and I think it's absolutely fascinating. Brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love that 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 sort of brought us back to where we started with Taoism, Lao Tzu, this idea of in our developed world, it's almost like we want never-ending summer, we want never-ending light, we want never-ending happiness. Mm. Trying to ignore the reality of the need for the contrast, the yin, the yang, the, the darkness, the light, the, the winter as well as the summer, the hardship as well as the times of joy and happiness, that it's actually that 
creative tension between those two things that makes life worth living. And yeah, that flow state needs the difficulty and the challenge to bring out the the focus that leads to the the flow, like that really yeah. paying attention to yeah. what we're doing. So exactly. I love it that we've sort of come full circle. Yeah, I mean, it was quite quite uh, humbling in a way for me to, uh, because I did it quite late in the writing of the book, sort of turning to Lao Tzu and his, uh, you know, Tao Te Ching, which, which I, I, I had read and looked at before and I never really properly understood, I think, because it's quite elliptical piece of work. You know, it's written in the form of these very short, almost poetic things. And there's a lovely translation of it by Ursula Le Guin, uh, which I, which became my sort of bible for it in the end, because because she she turned it into such poetry. But I found so many of the things that I was talking about in a book that was written two and a half millennia ago, and and that sort of you know in some ways that gave me a huge. It was humbling on the one sense, you know, we're not as wise as we think we are, of course not. Um, but it was also, you know, it was also part of what I was trying to do was to say actually these enormous resources of incredibly creative people, wise people over millennia are available to us in thinking through the situation that we now face as, as a resource for creating a better society. They are still there, their lives are still there, their examples are still there. And post-growth in one sense is, I think of it as that way, as of providing a set of resources for people who want to think through these things themselves and draw on the wisdom of the ages to, to be able to do so. You know, not imposing in a didactic way anything that any one luminary may or may not have said, but just acknowledging actually that, that the wisdom of the moment is a wisdom that we have inherited from our elders over, over millennia and that that is still available to us. Beautiful. And um, I have the exact same translation, which given that it is apparently the most translated book in the world, what are the odds we both have Ursula Le Guin's version of it? It's, yeah, it is, it is a beautiful translation, though. It's, it's really you know, poetic rather than functional, and, and, and it speaks volumes. So much wisdom there, and so much wisdom in your work and your life as well, Tim. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been so rich and deep. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show, Roz. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased that we did this little role reversal. Did I pass? You have to send me out of the room while you confer with your producer and then uh, tell me whether or not you want me to do revisions. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll make you sweat. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, okay. I, you did a fine job, Tim. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know I did. What I really appreciate about him is his courage to question the status quo, especially around GDP as the preeminent metric of success, when we know that it's a tremendously poor indicator of well-being and happiness. We've been sold this myth that sustainability is all about sacrifice and wearing a hair shirt, and it just isn't true. Once our basic needs are met, we really do have the opportunity to have happier people and a healthier planet at the same time by focusing on the things that bring real joy, like doing fulfilling work, having healthy relationships, and feeling safe and supported by our community. We really can have our environmental cake and eat it. 
There's lots of information about Tim on his website at timjackson.org.uk if you want to find out more. Until next week, wishing you joy, happiness and well-being. Bye for now.